Well, good morning to you. Um, for those of you who don't know me, um, I'm Pete Bentley-Taylor. We were part of this church for a couple of years. Uh, last summer, we went to London, where I'm studying at Oak Hill Theological College. And just also to reiterate what I said. No faith. Faith is circumstantial, people. Circumstantial. It's a bit like having ginger hair. You either have it or you don't. Lucky if you do. So people say things like, well, I'd like to have your faith. I just don't. Don't believe. Just don't have faith. As if it's some kind of subjective quality, almost genetic, that you're born with or you're not. Lucky if you have it or not, depending on how you see it. It's circumstantial. It's also seen as irrational, so it's blind. There's no evidence. It's not based on reason. It's belief in the dark. It's wishful thinking. So we tell ourselves the story. People used to believe in the dark ages. We're dreaming about it. Now we've moved on to the light. We don't believe anymore. So believe as you must, but understand that the view you're not receiving is rational. It's also seen as something that's not rational. If you're going to believe, give it to yourself. It's like your will and passions. For home, not work, but even for home. It's seen as blindness.
has been essentially taking it Peter says, my going is not what you'd expect. Why should we have hope? Number one, he is the resurrection. Two, he alone can trouble us. myself and my prayer for us this morning is that we would have a deep trust. So the first thing is this, he's the way to the Father. He's come from the Father and he's going back to the Father. And he's going back to prepare a place for his people. If we look at verse 2, this is what Jesus says. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is going to his Father's house which is a reference to heaven. And in heaven, in his father's house, there are many rooms. So picture a luxurious villa. Terrace buildings, shaded gardens, abundance of trees, flowing water, built for an ever-expanding household. That's what heaven is like, you see. A space for many, many people. Jesus is going there, his father's house to heaven, to prepare but does that mean we're to think of Jesus as a builder? Which I think John and Edward overreject. Steel cap, steel cap boots on, he's got a, uh, maybe he's got his um, a pencil maybe with his notebook and he's, he's got his chisel. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is heaven a 2,000 year building project going pretty badly? Jesus the builder, it's taking a long time. Is that what he's doing? Well, I don't think so. And I'm sorry if that's what you thought. What it means for Jesus to prepare a place for us is to get us ready for heaven. He's going there to make it possible for us to be there. Now, what that means is that Jesus is going to the cross. He's going to rise and he's going to ascend into heaven as a high priest who intercedes for us. He will offer his life, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world and he'll make us fit for God. It is because of his work on the cross that he prepares a place for us. We have a place in heaven because Jesus died. And that is why he promises, promises us, whoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, if Jesus is going then to prepare a place for us, to make us fit for heaven, he also says he will come back for us. That's his promise. Look at verse 3. He says this, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Just notice what we learn about heaven. It is not, therefore, an, some kind of outer body mystical experience. It's to be with Jesus. That is what heaven is about. It is where our souls find rest. We're not to think of heaven as the afterlife, as if this life is really what it's all about, and that's the kind of postscript. Now, in this life, we live in the shadowlands. We get a glimpse of life, but it is ultimately unfulfilling. In the midst of life, we're in death. 
Heaven is the reality. It is better to be be with Christ, better by far. And Jesus says he's gone there to prepare a place for us, and he will come back. Recently, some friends of ours moved house, and uh, they've got three children. So when they moved, they took their children um, to be with their grandparents. They went to Legoland, and the parents went to pack the house. That's what they did. They packed the house. They moved the stuff to their new house. They unpacked, got ready. What did they then do? Well, of course, they went back to get their children to bring them to the new house. The very purpose of the separation always had the reunion in mind. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm going, but I'm coming back for you. And in verse 4 he says, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Don't worry. I'm coming back. You know where it is. You know the way. It sounds pretty good, but Thomas is confused. And he pipes up. He says, actually, Jesus, we don't know the way. We don't know where you're going. So so how then can we get there? Now, what's the point of having a sat-nav if you don't know the postcode? Not very useful. But what Thomas doesn't realize is that because they do know Jesus, they do know the way. Because he is the way. So Jesus says, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the way to the Father. The way to get to the Father, the way to have a place in heaven in the Father's house, is through Jesus Christ. He is the way to the Father. He's the truth. He's the only one that can tell us the truth about God, the truth about the way. And he's the life. He's the only one who can bring us into friendship with God. And just in case we've not got this, he then puts it negatively. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is not a way to the Father. He is the way to the Father. If you don't come to Jesus, you don't have the Father. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have God. He is the way to the Father. Now, I don't have to tell you that this kind of teaching is controversial in our society. It's not especially popular if you go around telling people that. We live in a pluralistic society where all truth claims are seen as equally valid. I was struck by this recently. My son has been going to his preschool. It's a Church of England preschool. And just recently, he was reading a book about sheep with uh, one of his teachers. And he noticed that this book was quite similar because about sheep to Jesus' parable of the lost sheep. And he said this to his teacher, who's a Christian. And she then talked to him about Jesus and this parable. And she said to, to Susie, my wife, later, she said, oh, it was so nice to talk to your son about Jesus because we're not allowed to. We're not allowed to bring it up. If they raise it, then that's okay. But we're not allowed to, to bring it up. A Church of England school, not allowed to talk about Jesus. And why is that? Well, it's because of this philosophy, this religious pluralism, this idea that all religious claims are equally valid, and it's not right to suggest that one is, more, is better than the other. So we picture it as a mountain, and all religions are these different routes going up to the top of the mountain. And in the end, we'll find out we all really believe the same thing anyway. But the problem with that is obvious. It doesn't work, because how do we know that's true? 
Who tells us that that is true? Who's at the top of the mountain looking down and telling us that's what it's like? Well, it's the religious pluralists. Their claim that there is no one way is, of course, an exclusive claim. And if you disagree with them, well, you're wrong. We can't really help but being exclusive. Whatever you think, you don't think something else. So what are we left with? What we're left with is the question, who do you trust? Who do you believe? Who has the right to tell us the truth? That's the question. Is it the pluralist, the secularist, the Muslim, the atheist? Or is it Jesus Christ? I was chatting to a Tesco deliverer recently, and uh, he told me that he was from India, uh, brought up in Hinduism. And he's come to this country, and he's embraced this religious pluralism. He says, all that matters is that you're sincere. I challenged this, had a conversation, and he left, and as he walked around, he turned around to me and said, trust me. I thought, yeah, that's it, actually, isn't it? It is all about that question. Do I trust you? No. Actually, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, do I trust myself? Not really. Do I trust you? Or do I trust Jesus Christ? That is the question. And this morning, Jesus is calling us to trust him. He is the way to the Father. We have a call to believe the words of Jesus. That's the first thing we see. He's the way to the Father. Raises the obvious question, though, how can he make such a claim? And here's the second thing. He alone can show us the Father. So he says in verse 7, if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. Now just stop for a moment. That is a staggering thing to say, isn't it? If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. No one else has ever made such a claim. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. In fact, because you don't do know me, you know him and have seen him. That's amazing. Now, Philip is listening, and he just can't quite believe this. Really? To see the Father? I mean, as a Jew, he knows that God is invisible. He knows that God is incorporeal. He doesn't have a body. He's not limited in physical space. But he also knows that God is a God who reveals himself. We're made for him. And he has appeared in the Old Testament. We, we read of it to Moses, to Isaiah, to Ezekiel, and Philip thinks, yes, <laughs> this is Jesus, yes, I, I would love to see God. So, so he says in verse 8, he says, Lord, show us the Father. That will be enough for us. You don't have to do any more. It's okay, just show us the Father. You can sense his excitement. Just imagine to see God. But there is something really important that Philip has not grasped. See, what he has not understood is that what he has already experienced in Jesus is far greater than anything anyone had ever experienced before. Remember, Moses saw the back of God when he was hiding in the cleft of a rock. And Jesus says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Because I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Don't you understand, Philip, he says. I've not come in my own authority. The words I say to you belong to the Father. It's the Father who's doing his work through me and through my words. Verse 11, have a look. He says this. Believe me when I say I'm in the Father. The Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. See, Jesus points to his unique identity. He indwells the Father. 
The Father indwells him. He is at one with the Father. How, how do we know this? Well, he says, um, because he does things that the Father does. And he points to his evidence, to the, to the evidence of his works. Just think about what Jesus did. He turned water into wine, showing the blessings of the new covenant. He healed a young boy of sickness, a blind man, a lame man, by just saying a word. Complete control over sickness and disease. He fed over 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves, reminding us of what God did with Israel in the desert. He walked upon the water, showing the Creator's power over his creation. He even raised a dead man. He has authority to give life, to take it away. And he says, believe. My works are a signpost pointing to my identity. I've been demonstrating the Father's power. No one else could do these things. It's worth remembering that no one denied them as well. Even those who opposed Jesus never denied his miracles, just the source of them. And he says, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He alone can show us the Father. It's worth just pausing and spelling this out a little bit, See, the reason that Jesus is the way to the Father is because of who he is. He is at one with the Father. The Father is living in him, doing his work. This is a hard concept for us to understand, but what we're seeing is that Jesus is intimately connected with the Father. He is everything the Father is except Father. And that's why we have the language of the Son. When he calls himself the Son, he is showing that he is completely equal with God, and yet different. My son is he's my equal. He's, of, he's from me. He's like me. He's not less than me, but he's also not me. He's my son. And so Jesus is showing us his unique intimacy with the Father. He's one with the Father. He's not a rival. He's not a creature. He is the son. And because he's the son, he can show us the Father. He alone can show us the Father. Now, just imagine you wanted to meet Prince Charles and get to know him. It's maybe a stretch of your imagination. He's royalty, so he's fairly inaccessible. Um, so you might go to some kind of public event where Prince Charles is and see him from afar. You might watch him on TV, get a bit closer up. You might read about him and get an insight from those who know him. The problem with that is you'd never quite know how well they knew him. But then, just imagine, in your search for knowledge of Prince Charles, you end up meeting Prince William. And, uh, and you say to him, well, look, can we go out for a drink and chat and ask him about his dad? So that's what happens, and he tells you a bit about his father. I imagine there'd be some surprises, some things you'd never have guessed. And there'll also be some contrast, things where, which just con um, contrast with what the, writer, the journalists said in their books. And so then the question is, who do you trust? Who is the better source of authority? Is it the writers or is it the son? And the question is, who knows him better? It doesn't really fully capture what Jesus is saying, but it is something. Jesus can show us the Father because of who he is. He knows the Father intimately. He indwells the Father. Him, he alone. Just think of how amazing that is. 
there was one objection. You might be thinking, oh, that is true. And if I was Thomas, Philip, one of the disciples, I've seen Jesus. Well, yeah, I believe. Because I could then say, I've seen Jesus, I've seen Jesus. says this, the words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but it is the Father living in me doing his work. The Father does it. We encounter God. We see the Father when we hear the word and that is why Jesus says to Thomas later on, because you have not seen and you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Why have they believed? We have in the gospel. But we have his word. We read his word. And he says, he alone showeth the Father. So let me ask you, do you believe that Jesus is the way to the Father? Because when we see Jesus, we see Do you take Jesus at his word? Do you have a place in heaven? Home. House. And this is no blind faith. This is not simply wishful thinking. Because Jesus says, look at my work. I do the things he does. Who else could give sight to the blind? Who else can make the lame man walk? Who else can walk upon the water? Who else can raise the dead? Do you believe? If the answer is no, let me ask you then, who do you believe instead? Because this idea that there are people of faith and people of no faith is a myth. It's a myth because we all believe someone whether we are particularly conscious of this or not, we're all trusting in the words of someone, whether it be Jesus Christ or Richard Dawkins or some other philosopher. And Jesus Christ stands alone in the history of this world and he says, actually, he is the only one who can tell us the truth about God. And if you're not a Christian today, let me urge you to take his words seriously because he alone is trustworthy. His words will never pass away. If you are a Christian, do you see how precious Jesus is? Because if Jesus is not the Son, then this is what follows. We have no idea who God is. We are utterly in the dark. The lights have been switched off. The electricity is out. Our eyes are not adjusting. We are utterly in the dark. God is utterly unknowable. We have no idea what life is all about. Then we have every reason for our hearts to be troubled, to despair. All we can do is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That is why the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons are in such serious error. If you deny that Jesus is the Son, He's just a creature. He cannot tell us about God. We know nothing about God. We're in the darkness. That's why Islam is in such serious error. Jesus is just a creature. He can't tell us about God. The idea of Allah is utterly unknowable. 
If Jesus is not the Son, we have no idea about God. We're in complete darkness. And that is why for us, this is so precious. Because he is the Son. He can show us the Father. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Can you see how precious Jesus is? So do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's the way to the Father. He alone can show us the Father. And here's the final reason to trust Jesus this morning. He continues to reveal the Father today. He assures his disciples that his work is not over with his departure. So look at verse 12. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. So he assures them his works will continue through his disciples, through his people. And did you notice, they're not just going to continue. They're actually going to increase. Greater works are going to happen as Jesus departs. And we're left thinking, well, what does he mean? Am I really going to do greater things than Jesus? Sounds a bit arrogant to say that. We need to understand, of course, what works are that he's talking about. And this same phrase is used in chapter 5. So just hear this from John 5, verse 20. Jesus says this, The Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So the work of Jesus, the work of the Son, is to bring life and to bring judgment. And it's when he judges that he will bring life. To bring life is another way of saying to show us the Father, because to have life is to know the Father. And Jesus says this work of showing the Father, of bringing life, is going to continue when I leave. It's going to increase he continues to reveal the Father today. In what sense will they be greater, though? Well, I think it's partly in terms of scope. The scope of God's work since the ascension of Jesus is far greater than anything that happened when he was on earth. When Jesus was teaching on earth, not many people believed. But just think of the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. When the Holy Spirit is given, 3,000 people believe on one day. And what have we seen since then? Well, the gospel grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. But easy to lose sight of that in our country, but it's true. The gospel is bearing fruit all over the world. Greater works. In terms of scope, I think also in terms of depth. When Jesus was teaching, his disciples have very little understanding of what he's talking about. They get it wrong all the time. But when Jesus sends his Holy Spirit, well, he will enable us to see who Jesus really is, to understand his word, and to have power to proclaim him to other people. Greater works. He continues to reveal the Father today. And I think that's what verse 13 and 14 are all about. Look at this promise. You probably noticed it. And I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. Now, we've got to say this verse sounds pretty exciting, doesn't it? Whatever you ask for in my name. So we're thinking... Uh, <clears throat> Hot tub, Mercedes-Benz, the, uh, the winning lottery numbers. How about a, a villa on the Riviera just to get me ready for heaven? That sounds quite a good idea. 
Well, in this context, that's, that's not what this verse is about, though, is it? Jesus makes an incredible promise that what we ask for in his name and for his glory, he will give to us. So we're still thinking, well, maybe that hot tub I could use for evangelistic purposes in his name, for his glory. But in the context, Jesus...